I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's dive beyond the clickbait to analyze what's really happening in the world of media. I'm Alan Rusfridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, has the government captured the BBC? Put this in the context of the BBC board, where another active agent of the Conservative Party, a former Downing Street spin doctor and former advisor to BBC rival GB News, now sits, acting as the arbiter of BBC impartiality. We return to the subject of Robbie Gibb, Gibgate, as I've called it, and my investigation into the tight-knit and largely unaccountable clique that includes Gibb, which is undermining the independence and regulation of public service broadcasting. Listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And follow us on X slash Twitter. We are at MediaConfPod. My highlight of the week, Lionel was watching the Culture Secretary, uh, Lucy Fraser, doing a tour of the studios to discuss BBC impartiality and being completely tied up in knots by Sky TV's Kay Burley. And the evidence shows that there is a perception of bias in relation to the BBC. what do you think? Do you think, as Culture Secretary, that the BBC is biased? I think that on occasion it has been biased, yes. In relation to what? Well, um, this report isn't about incidents, but we have seen recently that uh, it's had to apologise for its own reporting, for example, in relation to um, the attack in the hospital uh, in Israel, so in in Gaza. It's the difference between mistake and bias, surely. Well, uh, there is a a perception amongst uh, the public that the BBC is biased, and as Culture Secretary, it's important that I look at that. I must say... These are issues that I have discussed with the BBC. They've taken yeah, but I'm on board. You about the evidence of bias. Where's the evidence? The evidence of bias is what audiences believe is the content of the BBC and but that's how they. That's not evidence. That's yes. perception. That is evidence. That is evidence. That is ev- impartiality. Is about perception of. Um, of the things that are being broadcast by the BBC. And the evidence in relation to that perception is that... um, Perception and evidence are different things. The evidence from Ofcom, having done studies and questionnaires of the public, is that um, the BBC's um, ratings in relation to impartiality have gone down. And I and the BBC think that there is more that the BBC can do in order to improve that. I think that was my low light of the week, actually, (laughs) watching it. It was, well, it was lazy. She was floundering in the face of an experienced journalist who just asked her, show me the evidence. And, of course, all she had was the case where the reporter made a mistake uh, in attributing clearly the bombing of the Gaza hospital to Israel. But this was a mistake. 
it's not the same as an accusation of systemic bias. I think one of the problems is that the I think there have now been eight culture secretaries in six years. So it's like a job now in government where you go for on, on the job training to discover how to do the job. And by the time you've learned how to do the job or what the issues are, which is a very complex um, department, you then move on. And uh, Lucy Fraser's a, a barrister. You'd think she'd know the difference between evidence and um, whatever her word was, sort of the public perceptions of bias. Um, but actually, I read I read the report. I suppose she she, she did too, but um, she showed no signs of having read the report because the report actually didn't have any hard evidence of bias by the BBC. And, and Ofcom year after year broadly gives the BBC a clean bill of health. Indeed, and I must say. When I was chairing news conference at the Financial Times, any journalist who stood up and said, yes, but it's the perception, that person would be uh, quietly told to think again. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's an obvious way of of attacking somebody, but without any real credibility. Well, it, it, this is what we're going to come on to speak about. But I think one of the problems the, the government has with Ofcom, they think, well, how, how can you not be finding this organisation um, biased? Uh, there must be something wrong with Ofcom. And that leads down a, a road we're going to be talking about in, in a second. So let's focus on Gibgate. You've written an extensive piece for this for Prospect magazine, what did you discover, Alan? Well, it started, I, you, you remembered, Lionel, I kept on getting the brush off from the BBC when I was asked about uh, what is obviously true, that, that Robbie Gibb, a BBC director, tried to interfere in the appointment of the BBC's regulator, clearly wrong. And I just wondered why the BBC was circling the wagons around this guy. Uh, and so I made um, lots of phone calls. And uh, my conclusion is that Gibb is now the most important journalist at the BBC, even though he doesn't work there. Uh, and therefore, he's one of the most important journalists in the country. Uh, and I think the, the headline we put on this is how the government captured the BBC uh, is not too strong a way of putting it. It takes a bit of time to explain why that's so, but it comes down to um, the fact that a lot of the BBC board are now not journalists. The director general is not a journalist. The chairman at the time that Gibb was appointed was not a journalist. And there's a four-person committee which now looks at all issues to do with impartiality, the thing that Lucy Fraser and the government is hot on their tails about. And on that committee, if you discard the two internal people, Davey and the head of news, Deborah Turnus, You've got Nick Sorota, who's an art gallery curator, and Gibb. Chairman of the Arts Council. Chairman well. of the, chairman, now, uh, now chairman Sorota, of the Arts yeah. Council, um, but, but formerly of the Tate, and Gibb. So Gibb is the only external journalist on this four-person committee. Now, sooner or later, they're going to be looking at, uh, at Israel-Gaza and the BBC's coverage of that. The BBC told me that themselves. And there's this curious thing that Gibb, uh, as well as being a self-confessed proper Thatcherite Tory, so he's, he admits he's a partisan figure, is also, uh, according to Companies House, 100% owner of the Jewish Chronicle, which has been one of the um, BBC's most bitter critics. Add to that the fact that Gibb was reportedly nominated for this role. He was appointed by the government. We think of the BBC as independent of government, but Gibb was appointed by the government at the say-so of a mysterious man called Dougie Smith. 
Now, Dougie Smith is um, reported to be one of the most powerful people in the land because he does all these appointments. He makes sure the, the right people, in inverted commas, get the right jobs. The political patronage. Exactly. Which has always been the case, but which I think we're going to talk about a bit. It's got worse. And he's the, the figure who supposedly switched the advice note to Boris Johnson about who should chair Ofcom to. They wanted to put a, a Tory apparatchik in charge. So I ring up number 10 and say, you know, I'm, I'm about to make this charge originally made by former cultural secretary Nadine Doris that uh, Smith did this. Number 10 says, well, we don't answer for him. Go to Tory campaign headquarters. I go to Tory campaign headquarters. They say, we don't answer for him. Go back to Downing Street. Uh, nobody would answer for him. And eventually the Tory head office said, well, look, here's a list of all the government employees, all the employees, special advisors, number 10. Smith is not on it. So here's a man who doesn't exist. With no official no role. No official role appointing government people to the BBC. So as I say, when I say how the government captured the BBC, I don't think that's an exaggeration. And this committee that you mentioned, which is the editorial... It's the Guidance, gu- the guidance and, and Standards, standards Committee, yeah. which is... That, that, that says a lot, though, those few words. Very important. Was set up fairly recently, fairly, wasn't it? Fairly recently, um, by, by the Cameron government. And uh, the one thing that we know from Lucy Fraser is that they want to give this body more power. They want, they want them to be able to intervene more in editorial complaints. So that will make Robbie Gibb, by the way, who's about to be reappointed, I imagine, for another three years, uh, even more power. And you know, lots of people said it would matter less if there were more journalists on the board as opposed to just him. It would matter less if Tim Davey had come up through the journalistic background. But because he's the the guy on the board who is the editorial figure, he's managed to get himself a lot of power. And also in the background is the whole question of, of government funding. So a couple of journalists, senior people at the BBC said, the one thing we thought of Tim was that he might be a marketing guy, but he he sees Gibb as the link to the government and therefore the link to the cash. So you've got to keep Gibb on board. Of course, he didn't get all the cash in, in the end. But somebody, you know, a household name said to me, you know, what's the point of getting the cash if you lose your independence? Um, and that's that's at the heart of this piece. Yeah, I worry about the lack of the journalist representation on this important committee. That seems to me a fundamental mistake. And I suppose I am concerned too about the strength of the top editorial team around Tim Davey, because obviously he does have a lot of strengths. He does have, I mean, I was on the Tate board with Tim for several years. He's a very thoughtful, um, hardworking, energetic person. He does have a come with a commercial background. He's a bit sensitive about not coming through the ranks. But I think it really is important when he got that appointment to have a very strong, if you like, inner cabinet around him that he could draw on that support, but also use it as a counter to Gibb. And one of the things that you bring out and we've talked about is that Gibb seems to think that he's got an absolute hotline to Tim Davey and raising every single issue under the sun, including Middle East coverage. And poor old Tim's under bombardment sort of over the weekends. I mean, that's it's a bit of hearsay, a bit of sourcing at my end. But, but this, this is why 
it's very important, I think, to to have stronger editorial representation in these key positions and to fight fire with fire. Couldn't agree more. And and I mean, the, the parallel I made is, can you imagine appointing Alistair Campbell or the other head of comms for Labour, David Hill, to be on the BBC board within a year of stepping down? I mean... That would have been unthinkable at the time, and there would have been a huge stink if anybody had tried it. I think the technical term is semi-trained polecat. <laughs> so, we've been slightly um, asleep on this story. Um, no uh, question. The, the, well, you're waking us well, up. You, I mean, well, I'm, I I'm, I've so. got the uh, Pro- Prospect magazine here, straight off the presses, blue cover with uh, the BBC. I better not give away too much here, but... This is it's an it's an impressive front cover and it's it's quite long this piece isn't it, it is Alan? Long. It but is long. It's a um, few thousand words, but having read it, I think it has been edited and it's got a lot of information. It's comprehensive uh, investigation into this story. Let's hear a bit more about who Robbie Gibb actually is. Here's a clip from the News Agents podcast featuring the former Newsnight policy editor Lewis Goodall. When I was at the BBC, Robbie Gibb, you know, made my life really difficult day after day. Robbie Gibb is the former director of communications for Theresa May, who then went to be on the board of Of the the BBC. BBC. Former communications. And also helped found a rival broadcaster, (laughs) GB News. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not really talked about this before, he made my life really, really hard at the BBC. You know, day after day, I would hear from people saying, you know, just watch it. Robbie's watching you. Because they had created this sort of confection that somehow I was sort of Labour supporting or, you know, doing Labour stuff. You know, by comparison to Robbie Gibb, my sort of grand summit within the Labour Party was, you know, vice chair of Birmingham Northfield CLP and youth officer when I was 17 years old. And I'm sitting there going, hang on a minute, I'm being lectured about impartiality from a man who until checks notes like 12 months ago was literally head of comms in Downing Street. So you can read this uh, article online and even better, take out a digital subscription to Prospect and enjoy a one-month free trial to our digital content. You'll immediately get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives and the sort of reporting that you'll see in this Robbie Gibb piece. There's no commitment. You can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, visit our website, Or go to your favourite search engine and search for, quotes, Prospect Magazine subscription quotes. Let's discuss this with two people who've held major roles in news and public service broadcasting, who understand the political pressures involved. So now we're very pleased to be joined by Roger Mosey, who's a former head of BBC TV News, controller of Radio 5 Live, editor of the Today programme and director of BBC Sports, so all, all the big jobs at the BBC, and Dorothy Byrne, the former head of News and Current Affairs at Channel 4 Television, and they're both appearing with us from their uh, seats in Cambridge Colleges, which they head. And, well, welcome to both of you. It, it's great to have you on. I suppose my my opening question, uh, you must have seen the culture minister, Lucy Fraser, touring the studios talking about BBC bias. Do you think the BBC has a problem with impartiality? Dorothy, why don't you go first? I think that the BBC is remarkable in how it overall achieves due impartiality. Obviously, it makes mistakes sometimes, but I don't see any major problem. What I do see at the moment and here is that its news has become bland or even blander. I've always thought it was a bit bland. 
and a number of broadcast journalists at the BBC have told me that many BBC journalists live in fear and they're always looking back over their shoulder to see if representatives of the government are watching them and about to pounce. Ah, well, we'll come on to that. (laughs) Roger, your perception is, is the BBC biased. I think the BBC is very good on political impartiality. I think it's been good on the big international conflicts. I I don't buy the argument that it's institutionally biased to either Palestinians or Israelis. Um, And I think on many of the big issues, it's pretty good. I I, I think what I tie in with Dorothy a bit is that I think it can be uh, a bit lacking in imagination in its commissioning. And there is a slight liberal default, especially on uh, domestic political and social stories, which I think is a bit problematic. I want to hear the widest possible range of voices about the way we live in Britain today. And I think the BBC can be a bit narrow in its approach and a bit narrow in its choice of stories. But is it um, a tool of the government? I don't think so. And I think on politics, it does a decent job at steering through some very choppy waters. Can we turn to the question of independence? The government now appoints five of the 13 strong BBC board. But the BBC, as we all know, is supposed to be independent of government. So is this a problem, the number of uh, government appointees? And how do you think a public service broadcaster should be and could be genuinely independent? Dorothy? I think five appointed by the government is probably too many. I think that the idea that the government should be represented as we voted for it, I don't have a problem with it. But I think that that sort of system has always depended on the government appointing reasonable people who journalists um, within the BBC and the public trust to not be too politically partial and to represent the interests of people. They can be members of a political party, but they should be perceived to be people who can look at things from a broad perspective and not just uh, from their own narrow point of view. Yeah, I think it's a bad idea in principle that someone who's been the Downing Street spin doctor is a member of the BBC board. And I agree again with Dorothy that it is perfectly okay for the government of a day to have some appointees on the BBC board who can reflect the popular mandates of the United Kingdom. I think that's perfectly okay. Of all the people available, um, someone who was the Downing Street spokesman is not the perfect choice, to put it mildly. And um, I think it's always tricky because it's not wrong to have people who challenge the consensus and you can't let the BBC appoint all its own directors because that wouldn't be democratically appropriate either. Uh, But you need people who are absolutely guaranteed to be independent. And even if Robbie Gibb is the most independent person in the whole world in his thinking, his past job is a problem because you get the kind of controversies we're seeing now. Moving on to the the makeup of the governance, you've got a BBC board which is increasingly full of people with no experience of news journalism or broadcasting. You've got this critical committee, the Editorial Guidance and Standards Committee, which has just been given new powers by the government, which has got four core members 
uh, only one of them with experience of journalism. You've got a director general who hasn't come up through a journalistic route. Until recently, you had a, a chairman who wasn't a journalist. That has given uh, Robbie Gibb tremendous uh, power because he's the only one, uh, the only non-exec with editorial experience. Is this new way of governing the BBC fit for purpose? Perhaps I'll turn to you, Roger, first, because your your memory of the BBC governance goes back some way. Well, first of all, I don't think Robbie Gibb is Machiavelli. I don't think he is running the BBC. I think he's part of running the BBC, but he's not the decisive voice. And I, I, I don't hear people cowering in terror from the potential approach of Robbie Gibb. What I do think is very interesting is the appointment of Samir Shah, because in Samir Shah, you have a chair who knows about journalism and knows about broadcasting. And we've previously had chairs in the BBC who knew nothing about broadcasting. And one of my um, former senior colleagues described working with one acting chair as being a bit like that scene in Airplane, where you're trying to get the passenger to land the jumbo jet. And it has been a, a very difficult relationship at times. But now you've got a chair who knows more about journalism and programmes than the Director General, who's Editor-in-Chief, does, and more than most of the board. And I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic. And I, I'm personally rather in favour of Samia's appointment. But it ain't half going to shape things up a bit. It's not what they're used to. I agree that the appointment of Samir Shah is a very good thing. Firstly, because he is a journalist and they need more journalists. That is a very good point. But also, I've worked a lot with Samir Shah. I've commissioned him to make programmes for me at Channel 4 over many years. And I think he is a very broad-minded person, open to views other than his own. So I think he is a good thing. Uh, but in general, it's a very weak system where you have so few journalists and it effectively gave more power to Robbie Gibb because he could say, well, I'm the journalist, I know about these things. But now he's got Samir Shah, but it's a lot on Samir Shah's shoulders to be holding up the independence and due impartiality of the BBC all on his own. And I think as new members come up for renewal... We need to get other strong people in to support him in uh, supporting BBC independence. So let's talk about the other elephant. Uh, I better not say in the room, it's, it, this elephant is in the studio. Uh, uh, it's Ofcom, the very powerful regulator of telecommunications, broadcasting. <laughs> and the government says that it wants to give more power to Ofcom, which is supposedly independent. On the other hand, we now know that Boris Johnson as Prime Minister tried to put Paul Dacre, the long, long time editor of the Daily Mail, he had 26 years at the Mail, a very partisan figure, big newsman, yes, in charge of Ofcom. And also shadowy Downing Street fixers, along with Robbie Gibb, tried to put their own man in charge of Ofcom. All the time, Ofcom gives GB News a more or less free pass. So the question is, is Ofcom fit for the job? Roger. 
Well, I always thought it was a very weird thing, among the many weird things that Boris Johnson did, to think about putting Paul Dacre into Ofcom. And I think Paul Dacre is a great editor of the Daily Mail. But Ofcom is more of an economic regulation. You know, we've seen this week, it's talking about the number of postal deliveries we might get. And a lot of what Ofcom does is really theoretical and economic. And sure, it's got an ultimate role in arbitration on um, impartiality. But it really wasn't a job that I could imagine Paul Dacre doing. And I think it's rather a misconception by Downing Street about what Ofcom does. And um, there's a long gap between Ofcom's regulation and processes and what happens on the journalistic front line. I mean, Paul Dacre would not have been editing the BBC and ITV. So I think that was a particular peculiar diversion they went into. Though you could see that their intention was to say to broadcasters and to other people, you've got to get your act together in a way that we find politically acceptable. So it was a bad idea on multiple grounds. Wasn't this just a very crude calculation by Johnson that he didn't care about the economic regulation or thinking at Ofcom? He didn't much know about Ofcom. What he wanted was a top-class BBC basher, somebody to get the BBC in line, to Paul Dacre, because his record goes back years. That, that is almost certainly true. I, I think that is right. Um, I don't think it would have been an effective way of doing things. And the, the whole argument, I completely get and feel very strongly about the fact there is a political attack on the BBC which is unworthy and ridiculous given the importance of the BBC to public life. And it has a range of political attacks. It has Lucy Fraser this week banging on impartiality, which she did without evidence and without any real sense that there is a great problem in the BBC. So the political attack on the BBC is real. The thing is that the levers somehow don't quite connect for the government, and they haven't managed to destroy the BBC if that was their intention. And, of course, the public appointments process did work with Paul Dacre, as I understand it, in that he was just about not suitable to be the chair of Ofcom. So at that point, the system did work in favour of plurality and common sense. Dorothy, a word on Ofcom. Is it up to the job? You could view it, and I do, as part of their uh, grand plan that went wrong. They would privatise Channel 4. That didn't work. They'd put people like Robbie Gibb onto the BBC to take it over. They'd put their man into Ofcom And then alongside all this, along comes GB News, potentially our new Fox News. And what we have seen there is that Ofcom has been absolutely pusillanimous about dealing with GB News when it has failed to be duly impartial as is required. So those four things, you have to see them all as one. However, they are not succeeding because they're so useless at everything, frankly, aren't they? It's like uh, some of this is like the Rwanda policy of broadcasting. They didn't get to privatise Channel 4. They put up Nadine Doris to argue for it. And she proved so ridiculous and ignorant that even Tories voted against the idea because it turned out she had to admit she didn't even understand how Channel 4 was financed 
but said that its financial model didn't work. They didn't get away with putting Paul Dacre in. Now Samir Shah is going in with Robbie Gibb. So the next thing that we've got to do is all be insisting that Ofcom takes firm action about GB News because we do not want a Fox News-style broadcaster here undermining our democracy. This is Media Confidential, and coming up, more from our discussion about whether the BBC's independence has been compromised by a powerful clique associated with the current Conservative government. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolf. Trendy is all about what people think and why politicians do what they do. So if you've ever wondered why Rishi Sunak says he wants to stop the boats, or who goes to university and how has it changed us as a society, then Trendy is the podcast for you. With a general election looming, it's never been a more important moment to understand the underlying trends which shape our politics. Trendy is available every Thursday on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rosbiger and Lionel Barber. We're discussing whether the government has captured the BBC, undermining the independence and regulation of public service broadcasting. Our guests are Roger Mosey, former head of BBC TV News, controller of Five Live and editor of the Today programme, and Dorothy Byrne, former head of news and current affairs at Channel 4. Can I, can I turn to the position of Director General? And I'd be really interested in both your opinions on this. So it's a very, very large job. Uh, you know, Lyon was a great editor of the FT, but he didn't also, he wasn't also CEO. He wasn't running the business side. And you've got in Tim Davey, a very talented person whose, whose background was in marketing. He's now editor-in-chief of the BBC as well as the CEO. I'm wondering, uh, perhaps we could start with you, Dorothy, whether you think these two jobs can be done by one person effectively uh, or whether they should be divided. Well, he's not really, really editor-in-chief, is he? I mean, the I believe the chief executive of Channel 4 is also editor-in-chief. How can you have an editor-in-chief who's never been a journalist? 
it's just a ridiculous idea. So who who is editor in chief then of the BBC in in your view, or is or is there currently uh, is that position vacant? We might have to apply, Alan. <laughs> I think we have to be honest. He cannot be an effective editor in chief if he has never been a journalist and just face that fact. Do you then want to have a separate person, separate to the director general, who is editor in chief? overseeing the head of news and current affairs. Well, I would fear, what would that person do all day other than interfere with the head of news and current affairs, which is an even worse idea? I disagree. I I worked with Tim Davey in the pretty uh, rocky area of the autumn of 2012 when we were dealing with uh, the departure of George Entwistle's DG and uh, also the aftermath of the Savile Affair. And Tim was acting DG, and I at the time was acting director of television. I found Tim wise and sane, and I thought he discharged the responsibilities of editor-in-chief very well. And sure, he's not a journalist, but he is a clever and sentient human being who can make judgments on the big editorial calls. So I don't really have any doubts about Tim's ability there. I think there's a slightly different argument, which is that probably one of the worst things that Mark Thompson did was get rid of Mark Byford as Deputy Director General. And Mark was not always a uh, an uncontroversial figure. And people did feel, as Dorothy said, that having a Deputy Director General there interfering at times was not always the right thing. But Mark was very good at reviewing, Mark Byford, very good at reviewing the waterfront of journalism, keeping track on the stories that are going to be troublesome, enabling the investigations to take place, and removing that role for rather cosmetic cost-saving reasons, I think caused the BBC quite a lot of problems throughout the interim and then in the Tony Hall era, where there wasn't as much grip on the editorial as there should have been. I'd second that, Roger. Dealing with Mark Byford, he'd have a drink and very watchful. And he was the sort of eyes and ears uh, around the organisation. Um, I'd like to zoom out a bit on and the general lessons from Gibgate uh, and this whole saga. If you think, and I'm reading, rereading Alan's piece, I mean, you've got a, a whole cast of characters, Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson, this shadowy figure of Doogie Smith in Downing Street, and of course, Sir Robbie himself. What should we learn? Dorothy, you you certainly alluded to the grand strategy, such as it, if you could call it that, the grand plan of the Conservatives towards the end of this period. But what are the lessons about public appointments and what, what advice might you give to a future Labour government? What we've seen is the fragility of a system that relied on good behaviour by government. And it's been quite frightening to witness I don't know how those appointments could be made better, but I think it is probably a good idea when Labour comes in to review how those appointments are made. We shouldn't forget that people of this ilk have been appointed to a number of other public bodies as well. They've been seeded throughout our public bodies And I think we need to have a bit of a a review of them all. I know you're just looking at broadcasting, but I am aware that there are a number of others and the balance has gone wrong. And I do think we need to review how it's done so that these organisations cannot be captured again in the future. 
That's right. And the transparency and openness of public appointments is absolutely crucial. And I I know that um, when the previous round of appointments was done for the chairman and when Richard Sharp got the job, that quite a number of candidates talked to me about, you know, what do you think I should be saying? And um, they knew and I knew that actually you just read in the paper that Richard Sharp was going to get the job. So it's incredibly demoralising and you deter good candidates coming forward. I think also with the BBC, a wider and broader recruitment of a director general is very important too, because um, the last four director generals, I mean, there hasn't been an outsider brought in really since, since Greg Dyke. And they've all been people who are BBC lifers, I mean, even Tim Davey had, you know, quite decent experience as director of marketing, head of radio. So it's all been rather close shop and internal. There still has not been a woman director general of the BBC. Um, there has not been a person of colour who's been director general of the BBC. And the idea that the people who've done it in the past are the meritocratic choice, I think is just wrong. There is a broader world out there and the BBC should be recruiting from it. My my final question is, in, in writing this piece, I spoke. I must have spoken to two dozen people. Some of them would be very well known to uh, the general viewing listening public. Some of them would be backroom figures, but probably known to you. And they're, they're all figures who, are, who love the BBC, who have given their lives to the BBC. And they're really worried by what's going on at the moment, what's been happening. How worried are you both? I'm not too worried because I think one of the glorious things about the BBC is that people cheerily disregard what the chairman and the DGs say, and there's enough spark in programme teams. I mean, I'm a bit worried in a way that there isn't as much spark in programme teams as there used to be, because one of the things they've done is erode the authority of editors, and I think the editors and commissioners need to be bolder and more imaginative. But what I pick up from people is not a sort of terrible fear of individuals in the BBC and a sense of the journalism being curtailed, because... We got used to it over the decades of not really paying that much attention to the board. And I think you've got to hope that that independence and spirit will assert itself in the BBC. And I'm pretty confident it will. Dorothy? I think what has happened is very worrying. As I say, I'm very pleased by the appointment of Samir Shah. But I think what went on was wrong and it showed the fragility of the system I honestly think that the BBC needs a much wider range of voices, but it also needs to be more daring. And a key reason for having a director general who's not a BBC person is I have never come across such a self-congratulatory organisation. You know, in COVID, we all clapped NHS workers. I feel with the BBC... They're all clapping themselves every day. Even sometimes when you listen to them on the radio, they're so cosy and self-congratulatory. And they need to know you are duly impartial, actually, on the whole. You're a fine body of men and women, but you're not nearly as great as you think you are. And there's a lot of the very best journalism in this country is not in the BBC although you think it is. That, I think, is also true. <laughs> I'm just going to push you on the final thing, Roger, because, um, it, I mean, it's great that you, you have got um, a more sanguine uh, take on all this. I, I suppose what's changed at the moment is that, uh, certainly when you were at the BBC, your sources of income were fairly assured. 
And yet what we're now seeing is really severe cuts, about 30% in the last 10 years. And so the BBC is shrinking. They thought they were going to get a big licence fee settlement. Uh, It didn't happen. And there's a sense of people who don't wish well of the BBC poised with axes and a sense that if the BBC doesn't toe the line, they're going to jeopardise their own funding. I mean, that is true, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, that is different. I, I should say I'm, I'm, I'm not sanguine. I think there has been a serious attempt to subvert the BBC. Like Dorothy, I don't think it has succeeded at this stage. The one thing that I'm allowed to do here in Cambridge, the one supervision I was allowed to do as a non-academic, was a, a paper about the history of the BBC, or an essay about the history of the BBC. And the one thing that I learned from that, and it gave me a perspective on the BBC, is that for the whole century or more that it's existed, they've always been great threats to the BBC. The arrival of competition, um, you know, the Pilkington Review, Thatchering government, um, Hutton and the Blair government. And um, all these times there were these existential threats to the BBC, which the BBC survives and somehow usually comes out a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger. Now, at some point, that is going to change and we may have reached a tipping point now. And the BBC could, if circumstances go badly, end up in a serious or maybe even terminal decline. I don't underestimate that. I suppose at the moment, I think there is everything to fight for. And I think it's also really important that the BBC, as Dorothy says, is bold and confident in what it does, massive in its range of voices, and that is going to be the best defence against politicians of all parties trying to interfere with it. Well, the problem, Roger, is that something new has happened in the last 10 years. It's not just the concerted plan to subvert the BBC, which Alan documents in his article and which Dorothy has articulated. It's also the way the economics have completely changed and the alternative sources of viewing that you have through Netflix, video on demand, etc., which means that the BBC is facing a really serious competitive challenge, which is nothing like it did in the 80s, 90s or even noughties. I I don't want to be a doomster. I think that the BBC needs to be a lot more robust and it needs to find ways of standing up to the the government, to these ridiculous claims made by Lucy Fraser, not necessarily in public, but clearly in private. But Lionel and and Alan and Dorothy, you are all very distinguished um, editors or commissioners. If I gave you £3.8 billion of public money... Um, in 2024, you could probably do something pretty good with it. And we have to, you know, the BBC is still getting £3.8 billion of public money. Compare that with the Channel 4 budget, or I don't know what the FT or Guardian budgets were, but that's not bad. They should be confident that they have that. And I don't think that is going to vastly materially change. And they have a reasonable prospect of a Labour government, which is probably going to support it. So the BBC shouldn't be on its knees. It should be fighting and standing up firm. I I do agree with, with that. Dorothy and Roger, it's been great having you on the show and watch this space. Uh, I think this will be a developing story, but it's great to have such uh, wise minds. Thank you for coming along today. Well, Alan, I'm going to ask you as an editor to put a headline on the discussion. What is it? The plot that failed? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, Roger at the end said there clearly has been an attempt to subvert the BBC. So, you know, that would be the headline. 
but both of them in different ways wondered how successful it's been. Roger, I think, was a bit too sanguine of saying, well, you know, the BBC's been there for 100 years, it'll be there in 100 years' time, it's seen off worse than this. I think he underestimates the the fear that I picked up from within the BBC, and these some of these were old colleagues of Roger, who say, well, what's changed is, is now a, a determination to cut the BBC down to size and cut its power, cut its independence. And they've got all those levers, and there is certainly a perception amongst Roger's old colleagues that those levers are being pulled quite effectively. You know, if you don't toe the line... You're not going to get the money. For me, the big takeaway was really Dorothy's crisp analysis, where she essentially says there's been a three or four pronged strategy by successive uh, conservative governments or prime ministers, their administrations, to one, subvert the BBC, two, squeeze the BBC on money, three, privatise Channel 4, and four, encourage GB News as the sort of Fox News outlet. And I think that when you put it all together, it really makes a strong case for Doogie Smith being summoned before a parliamentary committee to answer <laughs> some questions. <laughs> if they can find him, I have no idea where he lives or where he works. I mean, I think that the more you talk to uh, Dorothy and Roger, the current governance of the BBC, which is something invented in the Cameron era, is a nonsense. I mean, the government talks about giving this crucial committee more power, but who's on this committee? It's chaired by Nick Sirota. It has Robbie Gibb, and then the, the other two are Davey and Deborah Turness, um, both of whom, I mean, if you want to complain about the BBC's journalism, they're responsible for the BBC journalism. So that really is marking your own homework. So therefore, you've got two people one of them a government appointee who are the ultimate arbiter. None of it, none of it makes sense. Well, you've got they do have co-opted members to the committee, some outsiders. So there's some scope for bolstering the journalistic. Uh, how, how, how are they appointed? So um, you know, one I'm is doing my old, best. One is an old colleague of yours, um, and the other is a guy called Michael Prescott, who a long time ago worked on the Sunday Times, but political Spent the last yeah. thirteen years in PR. That would be my old colleague, being Caroline Daniel, who yeah. was. Uh, op-ed editor, weekend editor, and is now working as a senior executive at Brunswick. But you you get my point that the four core... I mean, as a way of tackling these enormous issues to do with uh, standards and and, um, impartiality, it doesn't feel to me a very robust way of doing things. No, and I think that you, again, in in this piece, just expose how ridiculous it is that Robbie Gibb who was a spin master. Okay, he was ex-BBC, but he's clearly in a very, was in a very senior partisan role as Theresa May's chief spokesman and spin doctor. I mean, he, he admits it when he went to talk to the Taxpayers Alliance. He said, look, I, I'm a Tory. I'm not a wet Chris Patton-style Tory. I'm a proper Thatcherite Tory. I mean, so he he doesn't pretend he is a uh, impart- uh, imp- impartial figure. But what he says about himself is, I can leave my politics at the door. But as we see, when he tried to stop Jess Brammer, the editor of the Huffington Post, from getting a key job because it would shatter government trust in the, in the BBC, you know, absolutely explicit that you know, this is not going to suit the government, 
he won't give anybody else the benefit of the doubt that they can leave their politics at, at the door. So all this thing, all the, the whole system is is very dependent on the on the personalities and their um, ideologies. Yeah, big picture though, I think that this saga that you have uh, uncovered, I, I better not use the word scandal, but certainly there are numerous questions raised about the role of these individuals in senior, in a very senior. Uh, an important public role, which is the chair of Ofcom, very powerful media regulator, which, as you say, we agree, it's being the government wants to give it more powers. This raises questions about the public appointments process as a whole. And I think that's what a future government, whether it's Labour, should be looking at. What are the difference committees and I, how does this work? I think that is the scandal at the heart of this. Lionel, probably you and I imagine a, a day when the person in charge of public appointments of this nature would be a sort of rather grey-suited figure who would go around and, and take soundings from all, all the, um, you know, the, the top headhunters and try, you know, their, their job would be to get the best possible person into the job. Instead of this person who nobody is literally unaccountable, Smith, uh, thinking, well, who's the best Tory we can get into this job? Who's the person who's going to do our bidding? And that's that is a form of, I'm going to say it, corruption of public life. No, I'm not saying it's a corruption by Smith, but it's a corruption of public life. It's no longer the good chap theory of government. It works very differently. I think that, uh, dare I say it, Brexit in the way it polarised people uh, in this country. It ruled out a whole class of well-qualified people who, if they were the wrong side of that debate, were not considered uh, as suitable candidates for these uh, roles in public office. So it's a lot of big questions raised, um, Alan. I think I'll tip my hat to you as uh, in your new role as uh, investigative reporter. Well, that, that, that means a lot, Lana. Now, if you enjoy Media Confidential, give the Prospect podcast a listen to. In this week's episode, contributing editor Tom Clark talks to a very special guest, Darren Asamoglu. Darren was voted Prospect magazine's top thinker of 2024 by its readers and endorsed by the editorial team. He's an economist, a best-selling author, and an all-round Renaissance man. In his conversation with Tom, he talks about his latest book, Power in Progress our thousand-year struggle over technology and prosperity. What I have been trying to do is really push the framework of how we should think about AI within this light and also take a proactive view, how we can shape the future of work in a better way, how we can redirect AI efforts towards things that will be beneficial for workers, for citizens, for democracy. So that's the agenda. That's Darren Asamoglu. Prospect Magazine's top thinker of 2024, and you can listen to Darren's manifesto for the coming year in this week's Prospect podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got any further questions for us about the media, email them to mediaconfidential, all one word, at prospectmagazine, all one word, dot co dot uk, and we'll answer a few of them in a future episode. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlic. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter slash X2 at MediaConfPod. Join us next Thursday for more insight and analysis on the media industry. See you then.
I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. Trendy is all about what people think and why politicians do what they do. So if you've ever wondered why Rishi Sunak says he wants to stop the boats, or who goes to university and how has it changed us as a society, then Trendy is the podcast for you. With a general election looming, it's never been a more important moment to understand the underlying trends which shape our politics. Trendy is available every Thursday on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.